Okay. All right, we are in a series directly related to the three books that we're reading as a congregation. We're also in a time of discussion about the future of the Disciple Center in terms of our priorities, resources, and gifting of our congregation, as well as our public ministry. Uh, we're reading three books, a Benedict Option, which is what this series is based on, a uh, book by the Archbishop of Philadelphia, Strangers in a Strange Land, and Out of the Ashes, uh, which is a book in a similar vein. We've already looked at the change in the culture and the change in the church in the last 70 years as I see a major shift uh, going on in, uh, in our world. We've looked at spiritual identity and formation of our children, our converts, and remedials in lights of the threats of assimilation and potential persecution. Last time I looked at social institutions, the culture moving really towards considering the government as the primary social institution and its control all over all the other institutions, including the family and the congregation, uh, which are both under pressure to change. I made it clear that the primary institution of the kingdom of God uh, is the household and then the congregation. And I ended up by saying we need to rediscover the religious home and the community of faith as a priority for ourselves, our children, and our converts. That shouldn't surprise anybody. We've been doing that for a long time here. Uh, before we actually talk about the homes and congregations, and next week I plan on doing only a very brief message, maybe 10 minutes, and the rest will be discussion about the homes and then about the congregation and those things as we move towards this. Because I can only cover with broad strokes in a sermon and we can talk more specifically in that context. So obviously we'll, we'll be recording that. Um, I want to talk about living by a rule. Uh, I've t entitled this Living by This Rule. You'll see in a moment where that comes from. Because this is the understanding of the Benedict option, which is based on what's called St. Benedict's rule. So, I'd like you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 to 18, is the text where this term, the rule, uh, comes from. Now, there, the the English Bible has the word rule in a number of places, but it's usually a different Greek word or Hebrew word that's talked about. So this is a kind of a unique statement here. In verse 11 it says, You see how with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. So the Apostle Paul who's dictated most of the letter is now writing uh, his own. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Now, Paul is not referring to not trying to obey God. He's clearly indicating that you can't fully do it. And the apostles understood that while they have a covenant with God, they're not fully keeping it. They're struggling towards it. They're wrestling towards it. But they're not keeping it. And if salvation were based on that obedience, they'd be in trouble. 
But salvation is based on faith. And Paul says, why are you Galatians wanting to be circumcised and get into the covenants in a fuller sense, uh, thinking that that's going to save you, it's not going to do that. So then he says, May it never be, verse 14, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, being Jewish is nothing, nor uncircumcision, being Gentile is nothing, but a new creation. The goal and the purpose and the function and the focus is the new creation that God is affecting in us. Which is related to the new covenant when God will place his laws in the hearts and, and change the bodies so that we will be able to obey. And he says, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brethren. Amen. Now that verse, 16, those who walk by this rule, is an interesting phrase. What he's talking about here is the idea of uh, pressure being put on the believers to conform so that they won't be persecuted. Okay? Now, in this case, it's persecution coming from traditional Judaism that has rejected uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and even from within the church, those who think God's only saving Jews, so these Gentiles have to do everything that we do. That pressure to conform or be persecuted, in this case, for the cross of Christ. So Paul says that's not the focus. The focus is the new creation and those who walk by this rule. Now, what does he mean, walk by this rule? The phrase literally means to walk in line or formation to a standard. If you've ever seen an army, they walk in lines, they're organized in there, they're at the same pace, and they're in the same direction. It's, it's that that he's talking about. Those who are walking, those who are behaving, those who are engaged in a lifestyle towards the new creation, on them, he says, there should be peace and mercy. So his focus is not on just what are the rules we have to obey, where are we headed? And this is an important notion because... We are living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans, and that we are to present ourselves, our whole body, as a living sac sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our worship, our, our approaching God. And we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we will know what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is perfect, that which is complete. The notion there is that the commandments are part of what we're walking in. We stumble with them, but we're trying to do that. But the focus is not on, am I doing the commandments and you're not? Am I doing the commandments and you're not? You're doing the commandments and I'm not, so you're a legalist. So, right? All those kind of things. It's that those commandments are for God's people to strive towards. Now, 
Strive towards what? Towards the new creation. Now what does Paul mean by the new creation? He's referring to the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new humanity that God is doing through Christ Jesus. And he wants us to know that for us, that's already begun. It's not fully here yet. Just like the kingdom's here, but not full yet, right? So the same with the new creation. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are in between the two books of Corinthians in our own uh, studies. I put this series in between it for a purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Difficult concept for Americans. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, he was here in the flesh, yet we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in the Messiah, he is a new creature or creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's a direct quote that last part, from Isaiah, in reference to the new creation. So what Paul's saying is, when you were given the Spirit of God and born again, you were born again as a new creation, part of the new humanity, of the new heaven and new earth that will be. But you're still in this one. Your mind is to be transformed by the Word of God towards that goal, And when you are resurrected or changed, when the Lord returns, your body will also be part of that new creation. So, Paul says, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter about the covenant issues, those are important, but the focus is on the kingdom of God to come and the new creation that will follow. He wants us to have that eternal perspective and not this kind of micromanaging mindset. Now, we belong to a new creation caused by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we are to be focused on a lifestyle consistent with the world to come. And we are to walk in righteousness of God by faith and with His commandments ultimately being written in our heart, even though we're going to struggle with that in the flesh in our bodies until the resurrection. That's why Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? With my mind, I'm serving the law of God. I'm, I'm one to follow Torah and the teachings of God and all that. But my flesh has got a different law in it that works against my mind and causes me a problem. Well, how do we deal with that? We deal with that, Paul says, by if you walk after the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Right? The Spirit's going to guide you. If the Spirit's guiding you, it's guiding you, it's provoking you, it's leading you in the direction of behavior that doesn't violate the commandments. 
And when you are doing that, the grace of God is sufficient for you. But if you think the grace of God allows you to break commandments, you're violating everything that Paul talks about in Romans, but it makes you a good American Christian in many churches. So, we live by a new standard, a new rule. The rule of the kingdom and the rule of the new creation. And Paul says those who walk by this rule, whose behavior is by this rule, that's uh, important. Um, They are the ones who receive God's peace and God's mercy. Now, in a period of great expansion in church history, the church went from a persecuted group to a group that was largely in control. You know, under Constantine, the ban against our faith was lifted and Uh, Several decades later, this faith became the official faith of the Roman Empire. We went from the persecuted to more in charge. Now, when you are more involved in government, when you are more involved in the world, you begin to be focused on the here and now and not the later. And, of course, the culture went that way. Uh, And the spiritual life of many grew faint. And in many cases, some cases at least, evil. Holiness and righteousness were lost. And the focus was not the kingdom to come, but how to continue power and wealth in the church and in the world now. And so what began to happen is the church began to have a form of godliness, but denying the spiritual power thereof. Then the Roman Empire fell. And chaos began to envelop Europe. The churches and the cathedrals and all that had been out there was now under attack by the vandals and and others who were coming in and uh, attacking uh, that system. So the clergy and the bishops and the people that had power were trying to defend themselves in that context. The man we call St. Benedict was born into this time. Around uh, 543 AD, he created a rule for monks for his monastery. Now, a monastery was a place that grew up in the midst of this affluence to allow people to separate from the affluent part of the church and the powerful part of the church and focus again on the word and on prayer and those things. And it will be the monasteries where the heart of the faith will continue in this assimilated, chaotic Christendom, as they called it. Doesn't mean all of the bishops were corrupt, but they were in a system that was trying to survive And so the monastery system and the convent system were for those who would uh, try to be more focused on kingdom things. And of course, they served the communities around them. So, St. Benedict wrote his rule. His rule was not the first, but it has become, it now has become, the most used in Christian history. And during this time, the monasteries became the center for Christian life for diaspora Christians. The cathedrals and the bishops more focused on retaining power and control because they had been a major part of it. So Christianity survived in the homes 
and in the monasteries. And this paralleled, to a great extent, the households and synagogues of Judaism, which also were surviving that faith in this time. These diaspora institutions were a retreat from the culture and a place of instruction, community, and ministry for the formation of Christian identity and focus. And they were a place to live by this rule. Now, many non-Catholics don't know much about this history, uh, but it really is where the heart of the faith was found through what we call the Middle Ages. Households and communities of faith. The household has always been the mainstay of the faith. In Judaism, and it should be in Christianity, Christianity often makes the congregation the primary, which I think is a false way to do it. But there are various forms of households and congregations that can be found in the Bible and in the traditions of Judaism and Christianity. I'm going to list them briefly. I don't have time to talk about any of them. You've heard them before. Uh, If you want to ask during the Q&A, you can. Among households, the most dominant one among God's people has been a married couple with their children. The second and very commonly referred to in the scriptures is the household of a widow and her children. Remember the word orphan means fatherless. So if you have a mother, but you don't have a father, you're an orphan. Widow and orphans. The husband-father role is missing. And that's true in both the Hebrew and the Greek uh, language. Uh, The third type that we don't see a lot of, but we do see them significantly in the New Testament, is the non-marital family. So we have Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha Stewart. You know, Martha's so busy, you know. People, I like that joke. Uh, the idea being that this is a brother and two sisters who have a household. Lazarus is the head of that household, but there's not a marriage there. Okay, um, And that is another form of biblical household. And then there are, in Judaism and in Christianity, what we, what we have come to call monasteries and convents in the Christian tradition of people of the same gender living together as a household with one person who's called the abbot or the abbess, the mother or the father, coming from the Hebrew word Abba, right? That notion of it's a fictive family relationship of people of the same gender who are living together as a household. I have been working significantly in... um, uh, with students at Cal Baptist who are extending the time before they get married, but they don't want to wait till they're married to have a religious household. So I'm helping them figure out how to do that with their roommates, picking the roommates, setting up the structure, putting in the family altar and devotions, and doing that so that they are able to follow that. And in a sense, those are little mini convents or, or monasteries. And then, of course, there are people who live alone. And the hermit uh, uh, spiritual 
life has a long history in Judaism and Christianity of people who live alone, either isolated for periods of time, or sometimes they have a home and they bring people in. They're, it's not like they're living in isolation, but they are, they are in a sense, ahead of a house, and the people that come in and go out of that house are, are not a permanent uh, setting. So we have multiple household types within the Jewish and Christian framework coming out of the Bible. Now, congregations. We have clearly, as early as the New Testament, what you and I would call house churches. This is where a family adds people or other families to their own worship and their devotional life in their home. And these became the earliest small grouping of Christians in the diaspora. Then we have the larger, what we usually mean when we say congregation, a gathering of households in a separate facility that becomes a congregation, or we might call it a church, or it might be called a synagogue. And then, of course, there are the monasteries and convents that have these larger groups that are unmarried, but they also maintain a chapel and services and ministry beyond uh, beyond the, uh, the facility. And then, of course, in the times when Christianity is allowed to thrive, you have the larger cathedrals, or if you will, today, mega churches, where it's so large that nobody knows anybody in that context. Uh, and those are, in some ways, problematic in both church history. You don't see much of that in Judaism, because diaspora is the is the norm outside of the land, right? Uh, so those are really a struggle that Christians have. What happens when we are too connected to the world? How much can we be in the world but not of it? Okay, for another time. So the household is the primary place of religious instruction and identity, and the congregation reinforces that communal life. Now, house churches and congregations traditionally had agreements as to what was their understanding of the faith and what was their practice. In Baptist tradition, our tradition, churches historically gathered and created what they called a church covenant. Some churches had slight different doctrines. Some churches had slight different practices. The church covenant would tell you the rule by which these members are congregated. And if you agreed with that, you would join them. And if you didn't agree, you went and joined another one. So the structure of a covenant or a rule is found in all forms of this. But it's found its most uh, clear definition in the monasteries and in the convents. Because clearly there, they were dealing somewhat outside the norm of the household and of the gathering of households in a congregation because they were single gender issues. Though sometimes a monastery and a convent, you know, a Franciscan uh, monastery and a poor Clare convent were sharing the same chapel and functioning together. So, a rule, or at least the rule of St. Benedict, which is what these books are talking about, has two primary divisions. 
And I want you to, I, I know we read it a few years ago, you probably slept since then. I hope you'll read the Benedict Rule, not the, the Benedict Option, that's the book we're reading now, but the Benedict Rule, because I just don't have time to, to teach all of it, I just want to talk about it. It has two divisions, vows and order. Okay. So what are the vows? Now, you could, if somebody wanted to, they could take the Benedict Rule and almost every line, they could go back to a biblical text with it. Okay, In many cases, several biblical texts. It doesn't do that. It doesn't say, here's the text, here's the text. Because it's written for people who read the text all the time and they know that they're being reinforced in that. Okay? These are not people who are reading the rule instead of the text. They're reading the text and now the rule is helping them pull it together. Different. Okay? So, what are the vows? Well, there were traditionally two vows that every monastic group took. Benedict added some additional ones. Those two rules that everyone took was a rule of chastity, remember it's a single gender uh, environment, and poverty. I want to talk about those in a broader sense, not in the specifics of the convent. First of all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. That each one of you knows how to possess his vessel appropriately. And not in fornication as those who don't know God. Paul's making an argument that sexuality for Jews and for Christians is different than the world, and that those who have come to a knowledge of God know that they are to avoid fornication. Now, we see that in, first, in Acts 15. We know where the uh, text of fornication is. It's, it's Leviticus 18. There is a standard, a rule, by which we are to live as believers in community. And so it relates to a, a consistency with the sexual commands of God. If not married, it's a commitment to refrain from fornication. If married, it's a commitment to appropriate marital sexuality. So that's part of the rule that we are to try and live by and, and reinforce each other towards. Secondly, poverty. Paul talks about this in some sense uh, because it's about contentment with what you have in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 8-10. to 10. And he says, if you have food and if you have covering, interesting term, if you have food and you have clothing, I would say the covering includes some place to sleep. Okay? If you have food and water and clothing and shelter, therewith be content. Because there are people who think that gain is godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. So while this is not sell everything you have and, and be completely impoverished, it is about living frugally in the sense that your life is not about what we have. Jesus said a man's life does not uh, amount to what he possesses. You can gain the whole world and lose your life. So, 
Don't say, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The nations are after this, particularly the American nation. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added. So this is not about we all have to be impoverished. It's about what we're after. If you're after the kingdom of God and God gives you resources that you can use in your pursuit of the kingdom of God, nothing wrong with that. On the other hand, if you drop the things of the kingdom of God to pursue career, to pursue significance, to pursue blessings so I can be a good testimony of God, you've missed the point. So those are the two primary um, uh, vows. Now, to those, Benedict adds three more. And those are also found in the scriptures. One of those is the vow of obedience. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, we're told, Obey those who have the rule over you, your leaders, he says. Talking about the elders of the congregation. Uh, As those who have to give an account for your souls, that they may do it joyfully and not in misery, that's not good for you. Okay. Again, the idea, and Paul, in all of his letters, talks about both secular and religious authorities, that we should uh, uh, entrust ourselves to them. This idea of obedience is, this is not about authority of these people. It's about, they, have, they are more mature in the faith, and you are to follow their example. And that's what this obedience is about. In the same way, children are supposed to obey their parents with the idea that the parents know enough to train them up in the admonition and nurture of the Lord. So the purpose of obedience is not to be controlled by another person, but that the other person's leadership can benefit you along the pathway that you need to go. And that's why an elder who sins is to be rebuked publicly. Because there's a higher accountability for those who have that. They don't have privilege. They have greater responsibility. Just like the husband has greater responsibility. He doesn't have authority over his wife. Headship is responsibility, not authority. So, the next one, and this is the one that is kind of interesting. uh, Benedict came up with a vow of stability. He starts the uh, rule off by talking about the different kind of monks. And the ones he thinks are the worst are the wandering monks. One minute they're here, next minute they're here. Now, oh, I think I'll go over here. Okay, they have uh, they have uh, uh, spiritual ADD. They they just get pulled away by everything that happens, right? And they're never anywhere long enough to mature or be accountable. Because they're always looking after something new. So, Benedict saw that people were not committed to a community, but kept moving from place to place and community to community without a serious commitment to their relationships. And so, in Hebrews chapter 10, drawing on that, we get a... uh, uh, That one we probably should look at, so let's... Hebrews 10.23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In order to minister to someone else, you have to know them. And to know them, you've got to spend time with them. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as the habit of some is. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That day approaching is the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Yom Kippur is the holy day associated with that. And that's why this time of year, this these ten days of awe that we're about to enter into, it is traditional to... To do good works and to encourage others to do good works and get back on track with that new creation mindset uh, that is there. So, stability. Now, in the book, he talks about uh, his own sense with stability here. I just want to say that in, for most of history, a Christian was born, a Jew for that matter, they were born in a village... And a congregation. They were raised in a village. And a congregation. They were married in a village. And a congregation. They had children in that village. And that congregation. And they died in that village. And that congregation. Their entire life cycle. Was enveloped in a community of faith. Not going here. Then going here. Then going here. Then going here. We live in a society that is so mobile and so atomized and so fractionized that often families hardly know each other anymore because they're busy. And we get that kind of cats in the cradle kind of notion uh, that if you know that song, you know what that's about. The father was always too busy for the kid. Now the kid is too busy for his dad in his old age. That, that's part of, part of that process. The final vow that he gives... Uh, is a conversion of life. And that we find in Galatians chapter 5, that's the one I mentioned earlier, where Paul says, there are certain things that are the works of the flesh, and these lead to death. But the fruit of the Spirit are these things, and there's no law against them. So if somebody tells you they're being led by the Spirit, and they're violating commandments, they are not being led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is leading us in the way that pleases God in that eternal perspective. And we have turned into the issue of Jesus died to get rid of the law, and grace is there so that no matter what we do, we're saved. Paul says it this way, which is completely different. What the law could not do, weak through the flesh, God did in sending His Son and condemning sin in the flesh so that we might be able to fulfill the requirements of God who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's pretty clear. It's just hard, and it's easier to preach grace in a different context. So, those are the vows. One related to our sexuality, one related to our use of money, one related to our commitment to community, one to the idea of staying put. Relationships are hard. It's easier to run away than to stay put and work through the relational problems. And then finally, the, the uh, conversion of life, this development. Now, the second thing in, the, in there, and I've got to, I can do it, I can do it. 
Second part is, I, I was worried about making this two weeks, but I, don't, I want to get to the conversation. Second part is order. Order is found in structured patterns of time and activities that are godly and in moderation. An ordered life in the home and in the community is Paul's admonition that all things should be done decently and in order because God is not the author of confusion. Now, a lot of our homes have confusion. A lot of our workplaces have confusion. The 91 freeway is confusion, right? That's it. Um, So, we live in a chaotic and confused culture and time. And the rule of St. Benedict sets in order all aspects of the communal life. Eating, when to eat, how to eat, how much to eat. He, He sets rules. He sets guidelines. They are not onerous. They understand that people will miss them. But they are guidelines and principles to give an orderly life within the community and within the household. Uh, if you look at those, you'll, you'll be amazed how many of them are simply commandments from the Bible just pulled in in that context. So, the author of the book, The Benedict Option, drawing on this talks about several items of order that I think are important. First one, prayer. Connecting to God regularly through the scriptures and prayers, not just praying. This is the spiritual discipline of reading the word, meditating on the word, memorizing the word, and talking to God. Practicing the presence of God. This is critical to the life of God's people. And most Christians spend far too little time in hearing God's word and in praying. The household and the congregation should be based on and filled with practicing the presence of God through scripture and through prayer. And I want us particularly to talk next week about what's working in your household and what's not working in your household related to that issue. It's been for us a difficult year for trying to do many of the things that I firmly believe in. Uh, and, and we just keep getting up, dusting ourselves off and moving forward again because I believe that those are important. I'm getting tired of tripping, you know. And I, fortunately, I keep tripping over a new rock. You know, if you keep tripping over the same rock, you need to move around it, right? But I keep tripping over a new one that, that seems to come at us. Feels like we're being stoned. So, prayer. A devotional life in the home and a devotional life in our liturgy. And I'm going to do uh, one of the, the YouTube videos on the meaning of our liturgy, what we use and how we do it, because I'm trying to get these things. We need it. That one needs to be visual so that you can show the kids and talk about the things in the ark and all those kinds of of things. So, prayer is a big one. But, all prayer, right, I wonder if I can, all prayer and no doing is out of balance. There are some people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, right? We, that's not the whole, that's not order. I'm just going to retreat for God, I'm going to go away and, and forget the world. There's also a requirement to work. 
We live in a time when two attitudes regarding work are being pushed. One is to do what you love. This focus is on self, and it's problematic for Jews and Christians. Because if I'm doing what I love, it's easy to ignore my family. It's easy to ignore everything else, because I love what I'm doing. And I'm called to do it. It's God, and out I go. That's narcissistic. Or American. Hard to tell those two apart sometimes. The other is to seek leisure and minimize the humdrum of work. Okay, I'm working for the weekend, right? Then I'm going to play hard, okay? This is also self-serving and self-focused. A theology of work should be based on the appropriate of our work as action as unto the Lord, serving rather than simply subsistence or certainly not career. So prayer draws from God and work serves God by caring for family and by community and the stranger in, in need. And those things create a, a non-secular, always practicing the presence of God in all that we do. Okay? Sweeping a floor can be in some sense, a acknowledgement of, of God. Not because cleanliness is next to godliness. There's no verse on that. But the idea is that we're doing things that help our family, that help our community, that help our neighbors. All of those things, that work is important. Uh, I'll always remember um, Dennis Prager once saying, uh, retired people need to be careful about thinking that they're done. Because the commandment is not just to rest on the Sabbath, but to work six days. And he said, I don't care if you're putting smiles on kids' faces, or you're doing something else, you should be active. It's part of, the very first thing God did with mankind was put him in a garden and said, take care of it. So even taking care of your block, cleaning up the beach, all of these things, whether you're paid or not, is a theology of work that includes God as unto the Lord. I think that's an important notion for us to learn and to teach our children. The third one is asceticism. Now, asceticism is a word we don't use. That word has a lot of baggage. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Essentially, this word means self-limitation. I talked about that in the Corinthian letter. Self-denial for the benefit of others. So the most common practice associated with asceticism is fasting. It is declining the bodily appetites so that you are in self-control. Which, by the way, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. And so uh, the idea is self-discipline requires practice which is why so often this is tied to the traditional fast. Doing the fasting doesn't impress God. But doing the fasting reminds us that we're to deny ourselves and do for others. Instead of just do for ourselves. Too much, men, uh, too much self-denial. And you become the needy one. Right? So we have to be careful about that. The spiritual disciplines and the stewardships train us to be intentional, kingdom-focused, moderate, and appropriate in our lives. 
Now, again, too much going one way. Ah, oh, now I'm going to fast. We also have to be hospitable. That's the other ordered thing that he talks about. Hospitality is a balance between asceticism and ministry. We are in self-control, minimizing serving ourselves so we can serve others through hospitality and ministry. But this balance is difficult. As I said, too much self-denial and you become the needy one. Too much ministry to others and you either become arrogant or exhausted. See that in the ministry all the time. So the balance is also going to be different between household and the community of faith. Because the priority Paul makes in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he talks about widows is you take care of your household first. Then you take care of the community. Then you take care of the stranger. It's not do this and not that. But there's a if you don't take care of your own household, Paul says, you're worse than an infidel having denied the faith. So that priority is there. The next two I'm going to put together, he calls one stability. We've already talked about the vow of that and community. These are related. Benedict was bothered by the lack of commitment and stability among the the brothers. Many just moved from place to place, home to home, job to job, congregation to congregation. There were never stable members of a community. In synagogues, in traditional communities, people were born, grew up, married, had families, grew old, and died in the same congregation. There's great value to this. And while we live in a time when relationships are utilitarian, and you can just replace one person with the next person, as long as they do what you need done, this stifles the idea of belonging to one another and practicing what I call the communion of saints. We're to practice the presence of God and we're to practice the communion of saints, the the body of Christ in that sense. To not do that will affect development and discipleship of the next generation. And so this stability and community is critical for kids. We all know about uh, preacher's kids that get moved around. We all know about missionaries' kids that get moved around. We all know about military brats that get moved around, right? There, there's no stability. Now, some survive that, but as a general rule, we know that there's a problem because of the movement, movement, new relationships, new schools, new relationships, new schools, new relationships, new schools. So stability and community are important. And finally, he talks about balance. Balance in all of these is really important. But I want to talk about balance in and of itself. Uh, In jiu-jitsu, we talk a lot about balance. And there are two kinds of balance. There's static balance and dynamic balance. Static balance is just a stance. I'm balanced. Dynamic balance is balance when I'm walking, balance when I'm riding a bike, balance when I'm surfing, right? There's, it's a different kind of balance in, when it's dynamic than when it's static. God is calling for us to have balance in the dynamics of life. Many of us say, boy, when life quit, leaves me alone, I'm going to get balanced. Then you're never going to get balanced, Right? So this is not about static balance. I got everything in place. Don't anybody move or touch anything. It's about having to make adjustments 
have to change lanes maybe, I have to move on, but I stay on the road, I make those movements intentionally with understanding the implications of them. And in that sense, I keep my moderation before all men, as Paul says. So the greater balance can be in the home and the congregation than in the world, and that's where we need to focus on maintaining our balance and teaching our children balance. Because in the home and in the congregation, there's a little more stability than there is in the rest of their life. Beyond those places, we can only maintain balance uh, through shifting. And, and, and you don't start out with the big stuff. You start with little balances. You know, it's like the training wheels. You, hold the, you put the training wheels and you're holding on with the bike and the kids go, I'm doing great. And then you raise the training wheels, but you still hang on. And they're wobbling a little. They're getting it. And then you bring them up. Finally, you take them off and then you let go. Okay. By now, they've got their balance. That's really what what we're supposed to be doing in the home and in the congregation so that then when we go out into the world for public ministry to be light and salt, to be witnesses of the resurrection, to do all those things. We're not doing it because we've been through a little training. Do you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? We do it because we have a life that's connected to Christ and to God and when, no matter what they ask about the hope that's in us, we have an answer. And it ex- it's experiential because it's our life, not a talking point that we've been given by an evangelism class. So, let me conclude this. I did pretty good. I'm a few minutes late. But we started late. The rule, the standard for, of the Judeo-Christian life is to move towards being a new creation in which the commands of God are written on our hearts and the rules and rules of the kingdom permeate our lives. This can be approximated best in our homes and our congregations. And the Benedict option is a call for Christians to make up, uh, to wake up, sorry, wake up and return uh, in our homes and in our congregations to that rule. Now the Disciple Center was formed for that purpose nearly 20 years ago. And for many of us, we have been attempting this rule for even longer than that. Our challenge is to find a way to stay the course as our family issues become more difficult with the number of children and the culture shift that's going on around us. A culture that is becoming more and more hostile to our family life and our faith. So, we begin with the household. Next week, I want to briefly discuss the household. Small one. And then I want us to discuss together what is working and not working in our own households. So I hope you'll come next week ready to discuss this. Not to brag or confess, but to discuss so that we can reason together for our mutual benefit. We are to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We're going to consider those who have found ways that work for them. We're going to consider people who have found ways. Remember what Edison said. He did a lot of things. And he said, I've learned a lot of ways not to make a light bulb. Right? Sometimes that can be just as valuable. Don't do this for Shabbat. Okay? Don't have an elephant procession bringing in the challah. Right? I'm sure you didn't do that. But you know what I'm talking about. What works at Advent? What works at Passover? 
I'm going to talk about trying to do a Passover Seder with two people in the family who can't eat. That's different, right? How do we make it meaningful? How do we make it real? How do we make it as biblically consistent when sometimes we don't have the ability to do it in fullness? How can we approximate it? Okay. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about next week, and I hope that that will be uh, useful for you. Let's pray.